0: Gracious almighty God, we praise you. We glorify you, O Lord. We lift up your name. You are God, and there is no other. You are God, and there is none like you. Declaring the end from the, and from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Indeed, precious God, all exists for your glory. Let me pray that as we look at your word this morning, that indeed you would give us understanding by your spirit, that indeed he would interpret these deep truths in your word, that he would show us, your blessed spirit would show us the wondrous truths that centre on the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, O God. We thank you that it is without error. It cannot have an error, that it is sufficient, that it is perfect, and indeed, it, it builds us up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we pray that we would learn about the Lord Jesus Christ from your word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 44, verses 1 to 5. But now, listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what Yahweh says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams, one will say, I belong to Yahweh. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, Yahweh's, and will take the name Israel. we'll be looking at this morning, the topic we're looking at this morning, is the blessing of being chosen by God. It is so good to be chosen by God. It has eternal consequences and eternal blessings. And unlike our choices, God's choice of his people is not arbitrary. It is according to his purposes, and the end of his purposes are many. But as we will see, they all center around the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you thought much recently about your election? Have you thought much recently about the blessing of being chosen by God? Indeed, many view the doctrine of predestination or election or, or being chosen by God as divisive, as being something to be avoided or, or handled with care. And yes, as with every truth, it must be handled with care. But at the same time, predestination and God's choice of his people is one of the most precious and treasured truths of God's word. And we neglect it uh, to our detriment. And in the book of Isaiah, from from chapter 40 onwards, if you've read the book of Isaiah before, from chapter 40 onwards, we see promises that God gives to his people, Judah, in their time of exile in Babylon. Promises of hope despite their sin. And at the end of chapter 43, just before what we're going to see in in verses 1 to 5 of, of chapter 44, we read these words at the end of chapter 43. You have burdened me. You have burdened me sorry, pardon me. Yeah, you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned, your spokesman rebelled against me, so I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple. I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. Can you imagine these words being one of the Jews in exile? And if, you, if, you, if you've read the first 35 chapters of, of the book of Isaiah, you will see that God hates sin. And I want you to put yourself in, in Judah's Shoes. I want you to put yourself in Judah's shoes. They are in exile, and the the words of Isaiah they've just heard in verse in chapter forty three at the end of chapter forty three that God has judged them for their sin, and yet they come to these wondrous promises of God, these wondrous comforts of God in chapter forty four, which is exactly what we are going to look at. The words of woe from chapters one to thirty five and the words of woe from the end of chapter forty three comes to an end in God's promises. Their sin has led them into exile, but God still is faithful to his people. They are in exile and despair, but God will not forsake his people. We will see the blessing this morning of being chosen by God. And Israel, Judah, needed to be reminded of this, and so do we. And as we will see, as with many promises in Isaiah and the other prophets in the Old Testament, yes, they have a near fulfillment in the return from the exile. They have an even fuller fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and onwards from him in his church and in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, as we look through the first five verses of chapter 44, I want you to see six things and we will go through them. Six things. First, what it means to be chosen by God. Secondly, servants of God. Thirdly, formed by God. Fourthly, helped and comforted by God. Fifthly, given the spirit of God. And sixthly, belonging to God. Let's have a look first. Chosen by God. Let me read verse 1 and 2 again. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen this is what Yahweh says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Though servant in the first verse comes before the word chosen, logically, to be chosen comes before servant because if you're going to have a role, like servant, you need to be first selected for that role. One must first be appointed to a role before they undertake or carry out that role. But have a look there, those words. But now listen. Even though God has said that he would deliver Jacob to destruction and Israel to reviling, to scorn, God now gives this glimmer of hope. He says, but now listen. Hear. Listen. Don't block your ears. But how does God describe his people? He calls them Jacob, Israel. Now that word Jacob there, it's important. It's often used interchangeably with Israel. And both names were used of Jacob in the Old Testament. And both of them signify that God is in covenant with them. Whenever whenever God says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament... He is saying that He is a God of covenant, and we will look at a bit more about that later on. God is faithful to keep His promises. So when He calls them Jacob, God is recalling to their minds that He is a covenant-keeping God, and we will see that later on. But that word they're chosen means to be selected, singled out, elected. And it's used many times throughout the Old Testament, and it's usually translated to be chosen or to choose. In Exodus 17, verse 9, Moses told Joshua to choose men to go out and to fight Amalek. And when you choose men to go out and fight for you, there are those whom you select and those whom you pass over. There is a, there is a purpose behind the choosing. There is a purpose behind the choosing. You pass over some and you choose others. In Exodus 18, 25, Moses chooses leaders to be over the people. It's a common word. That's a common word. In Deuteronomy 12, God says that he will choose a place for his name to dwell. And you read the book of Deuteronomy, for example, and you see again and again this fact. And if you just read through it, you'll see that word chooses or choice or chose again and again and again. And the idea behind it is this. The bottom line is this. Israel was to remember that it was God's choice that matters. They were called to choose whom they serve. If you remember Joshua 24, 15, he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. There was a choice they had to make. But at the end of the day, God's choice was the foundation of theirs. That even if they were unfaithful, even if they were unfaithful with their choice, God was faithful with his choice. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8, I want you to listen up and, and I want you to hear the word chosen. And I want you, I want you to, to see from this, the, these verses why God chose them. Why God chose them. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8 says, For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than other people that, the, that, that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. To be chosen by God is the highest privilege That you can have. To be chosen by God is the highest privilege that you can have. And notice the end of God's choosing from the verses I just read is it is to be a people that are holy to Him, set apart from the world to Him, to be God's treasured possession. And notice the foundation of God's choice. He says it is because why? It is because He loves you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. It is because he loves you. In Ephesians 1 verse 46, we read the same foundation of God's choice of his elect. It says this, Even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Same thing. God's choice of his people, whether Old Testament or New Testament, is out of love. Is out of love. And it's according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. If you are a believer here this morning, God chose you not as an afterthought, not in response to anything, For you were the fewest among all the peoples. He didn't choose you because of anything you did, but because he set his love upon you. He predestined you according to his will, not yours. He did it for his praise, not yours. That is why it's termed unconditional election. Election by God, not based on works, not based on merit, not based on foreseen faith that he saw, for there is no foreseen faith apart from his grace. It is a glorious truth which humbles every one of us to the dust. It leaves no room for pride. Can you imagine Judah in exile? There was no room for pride. When they heard those words, chosen, there was no room for pride. God loved you Before you had any grace in your soul. He loved you when you were dead in your disobedience and in the exile for your sins. He purchased you with his precious blood before you could even pronounce his name. How can you then be proud? How can you then be proud? You are part of God's people because God has chosen you. And that's what God said to Judah, I have chosen you. He says it twice, once in verse 1 and once in verse 2 according to his will, for his glory alone. In Ephesians, we saw that he chose us in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ, in God's beloved Son. Not just for the sake of Jesus Christ, it says we have been chosen in him, not just for his sake, but to be in union with him. And while we look back to uh, to Christ... The Jews looked forward by the promises of God, that they were to be chosen. They didn't know that they would be chosen to be in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But they they knew that they were chosen by God to be his special people. And we see this fleshed out in the New Testament even now. Believer, do you know this? Do you know this, that you were chosen by God? Or do you lose sight of this? Do you lose sight of this? Are you tempted to take pride in your salvation? Then think of your election. Are you despairing from the troubles of the world? Then think on God's choice of you. Then comfort yourself with this fact. Are you forsaken by others for being a Christian? Well, God's chosen you. He can't forsake you. Israel was to remember this. They were chosen. And so are you. Well, next we see that they are servants of God in verse 1. It says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant. This is the designation that God gives here. They were chosen. And when you choose something, it is, you, you choose it for a purpose. Even down from the smallest of mundane things that we do, like selecting a color or, 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 or choosing a flavor of ice cream. Or you choose a book or a movie to watch. You don't just, just choose any old thing. You choose something that you want. You choose for a purpose. And, and what did God choose? He says that he chose Israel to be his servant. And he was reminding him of this fact. And if you read the book of Isaiah, in, from, verse, uh, sorry, from chapters 40 onwards, we will see this idea of a, a servant come up again and again and again. But in Deuteronomy 7, a few verses down from what I read out before about, about Israel being God's chosen people and being his treasure possession, In verse 11, God gives the result of his choosing of them. He says this, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. They were chosen to serve and obey. In chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, verses 12 to 13, he says this, And now Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Israel knew that when they saw this word chosen, that obedience and, and servanthood was to follow. They were chosen and they were chosen to be servants. When they were his people, it was not a free ride. They did not get the blessings of God and they could do whatever they liked. For indeed, if they did that, then God had said, you are not my people. You are not my people. And that's one of the reasons why they went into exile. But we know that God is always faithful. In Isaiah 43 verse 10, God says this to Israel. He says, you are my servant whom I have chosen. See, there's two things there again. You are my servant whom I have chosen. They go hand in hand. God chooses, we serve. And this was particularly important to remind rebellious Israel because they had been anything but servants of God. They instead served their own lusts and self interests. They served the desires of the pagan nations around them. They served the gods of the nations, anyone and anything but God. God was reminding them that their fundamental job was to serve him. If you remember back in in the Exodus, when Moses comes again and again and again to Pharaoh, what is God's reason for bringing his people out? He says, let my people go. Is that it? Just let my people go and do whatever they like? No, he says, let my people go that they may serve me. That They may serve me. They were saved to serve. They were chosen to serve. What is the greatest example of this? In Matthew 12, verse 18, it says this of Jesus. It says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. It's it's, it's quoting Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And as we read those, those servant songs, those, those, those references to the servant in Isaiah, you see as it goes on, as it progresses through Isaiah, you will see that it becomes even more specific. We will see that in one sense, even though it was spoken of as Israel, we'll see how Israel failed miserably. And that it was actually never truly about Israel. It was about the Lord Jesus Christ. Even just reading Isaiah 53, that can't be about Israel. They could never atone for anyone's sins. But no, Jesus was chosen by God. What for? To serve. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He gave of himself. And now as God's people, we still have the same role. We still have the same role. And we see that our servanthood Yes, it comes from us being chosen, but because we are in Christ, we are chosen in Christ, that is why we are also servants, because we walk in his footsteps, we follow after him. What will Jesus say on that final day when we come before his throne? What will he say? What do we hope to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Masters have servants, and servants have masters. In Matthew 24, verses 45 to uh, 51, Christ said, and will Christ say these words to you? Christ says, "'Who then is the faithful and wise servant "'whom his master has set over his household "'to give them their food at the proper time? "'Blessed is that servant whom his master "'will find so doing when he comes.'" Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Indeed, there are many who claim to be servants of God, but on that final day will be shown to have never truly been servants of God. If you are a Christian, you are a servant of the Most High God. You are a servant of the Most High God. You were chosen for this role. You have the privilege of being a servant. It is a privilege to be in the service of Christ, it is a privilege. You were not chosen for idleness. You were not chosen for laziness. You were chosen to serve and to be faithful. Are you lazy in serving God? Are you lazy? Are you you weary of the Lord's ways? Are you weary of serving Him? Are you like a coal that's been taken away from the fire and and is slowly cooling off? Are you weary of being with the Lord? Are you lazy? Are you losing your zeal for the Lord? For the scripture says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Romans 12. Or is your zeal devoted elsewhere? Are you devoted to serving your own self interests? Do you seek your own kingdom? And strive to build your own. Do you love pleasure more than you love God? Have you forgotten that you do not belong to this world, but to God? Do you need to be rebuked this morning? as the slug it is in the book of Proverbs. Have you grown weary of serving the Lord? Have you grown weary of serving the Lord? Do you, do you love expending all your energy and your time in serving other people? Uh, in other things, aside from the Lord. Yes, we are to serve other people for the glory of God. But are we serving ourselves more than God? Do we serve even other people for our own glory? So that we will get that thanks. So that we will be praised more than God. Search your heart to see where you are not serving the Lord, God. Christian, you are a servant of the most High God, do not be slothful and zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Next we will see in verse 2, formed by God. Have a look with me at verse 2. This is what Yahweh says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb. This is what God reminds his people of next, that he formed them. He is the creator. He is the one. That word there means to, to fashion and to shape. There's, again, there's intent and there's purpose behind it. It is used in, in creation. how God formed man. It is used elsewhere in the, in, in the Old Testament to, to, to speak about how God ordained things and how God planned things. There's intent and purpose. God, God shapes us. It is used also in reference to to, to God being the potter and we being the clay and how God forms us and moulds us. And this is exactly what God is saying here to his people. I formed you. I made you. God is sovereign over the clay as, as a potter has every right over the clay to do as he wishes. He's saying to Israel... You are the creature. I am the creator. You are the clay. I am the potter. It really humbles them. It really humbles them, doesn't it? It really humbles them. There's, again, there's no, there's no room for pride. It humbles us as well. There's no room for pride. But the real intent and purpose of this, in God's saying that I have created, I have formed you, is to remind them that he has the power to help them. He has the power to save them and deliver them. Because God is the creator, he's able and willing to help his people. He has created Israel and us, and he cares for his people. And that's the next thing we see there in verse 2. What does he say? I have formed you in the womb. And who will help you? And those two things go go, go slap bang together. I have formed you in the womb and I will help you. We are helped and comforted by God. God will help them. It's it's a non negotiable. It's a non negotiable. And I don't think Israel was going to complain that God will help them, but it's a non negotiable. He has formed them and He will help them. And, And I want you to notice that all these things have flown out from God's choosing of them. He chose them to be his servants, and he formed them. And yes, he formed every single person on this earth, but he has reserved these particular promises for his people. He has formed them, and he will help them. They were in captivity with no physical earthly force to get themselves out of their predicament. And they would remember where their help was to come, to come from. Psalm 121 says, where's their help to come from? Our help comes from Yahweh, the maker of the heavens and the earth. See how those two things go together? And you, see, you start to see these beautiful patterns in Scripture about these, these, these wonderful truths going together. Their help comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. Their help comes from the almighty God, who is the power of all things Even the power to lead them into exile, yes, but the power to bring them out of that exile. As Matthew Henry says, we must encourage our confidence in God with this, that he made heaven and earth. And he who did that can do anything. He made the world out of nothing, himself alone, by a word speaking in a little time, and all very good, very excellent and beautiful. And therefore, how great soever our difficulties are, He has power sufficient for our relief. He that made heaven and earth is sovereign Lord of all the hosts of both and can make use of them as he pleases for the help of his people and restrain them when he pleases from hurting his people. How great is our God. How almighty is our God. And he has helped Israel and us most clearly in the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 1.54, Mary talks about the the coming of her son, who will redeem his people. And she says, he has helped, speaking of God, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has helped Israel in the remembrance of his mercy. Yes, God drew, uh, drew his people out of exile, but that was not the end to which they were delivered. But what does God say in, 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 uh, in the next words? He says this in, in, in verse 2 of, of Isaiah 44. He says this, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I am the one who has chosen you to be my servants. I have formed you and I will help you. Do not be afraid. And you can imagine Israel in Babylon, in, in exile, again, surrounded by pagans, the consequences of their sin. And God says, Do not be afraid. He's lifting their eyes above their circumstance to himself. We have that very same God today. God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. And yet we see that we have an even greater deliverance than the exile, than the return from exile. We have the same God, and yet we have an even greater deliverance than that, even from Egypt, and even from the return of the exile. We have, we have a redemption from sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what else does God do? Verse 5. We will see that we are given the Spirit of God. Have a look with me at verse 5. He says, sorry, pardon me, verses 3 to 4. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees, by flowing streams. We have this blessed picture here of God pouring out his spirit. And we see often that that imagery between, between the water and the spirit. And just as God pours out water, he pours out his spirit But who or what is being poured out? Water and streams. That's what it says there in in the text. But we see that these water and streams are in reference to the Spirit. We see this throughout the rest of Isaiah and other portions of of Isaiah in Ezekiel 36. In the New Testament we see this in, in John 3, John 7 and elsewhere. We see that the Spirit is the one who is being poured out. On what? Or on who? We see there it's the thirsty land. It's the dry ground. It's the land that needs it. It's the land that's parched. It doesn't have water and it longs for water. But who does this correspond to? It says the offspring or descendants of Israel. The offspring or descendants of Israel. We, you see this, this need for water. You see this in the drought that Australia's had for, for many years. And we saw pictures of it, of it recently before covid and we saw pictures of dust bowls and wastelands in the country, in, in, in flock and, 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 and oxen and, or, or, or cattle feeding off from small clumps of bushes. And even we had, to get, we had to get straw into them. Why? Because they couldn't feed off the land. The land didn't have life. It couldn't sustain them. It didn't have moisture And that's why we were praying for rain individually and, and in um, our prayer service in the evening. Why? Because ground that is dry and lifeless needs water. It needs water. And just as dry, barren ground longs to have some water, so unregenerate, dead hearts that are lifeless of any spiritual life, they need to have the spirit. Of God. They need to have the Spirit of God. They can't produce water themselves. The, the, the ground does nothing, it just sits there. It needs that external force. It needs that, that, that water that comes out uh, from from another place. And, and, and this water creates life. And we see it as as water goes on. There starts to be little shoots that come up. There's life. There's life. And this is the soul-cleansing work of the Spirit of God in regeneration. And this is a promise given to Judah that does not see its full fulfillment until Acts chapter 2, as, as we heard Danny read out for us this morning, where God pours out his Spirit in great abundance. And what do we see? What do we see as the Spirit is poured out? What happened at Pentecost in Acts 2? We see that God's people were filled with the Spirit But we see that many were converted, thousands were converted that day. They were cut to the heart and they were converted and they were brought to God. And this is what this promise is saying. That the Spirit would be poured out. Not a a physical rain, but a spiritual rain. Those whom God has chosen from eternity past would experience this work of the Spirit sent by God. Isaiah 44, verse 4. Back in that chapter, we see in verse 4 what happens? They will spring up, they being the descendants of Israel. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. There is life and growth where the Spirit of God is. And thus, that's why we pray that Christ would continue to pour out his Spirit. That is why, in all our efforts to, to tell people the gospel, we, that's why we pray this, for the Spirit. That the Spirit will bless the work we sow. And in one sense we water, but it's God who gives the growth. It's God who gives the growth. What an amazing blessing the Spirit of God is. The gift of the Spirit is, I'll say this clearly, the, Spirit, the gift of the Spirit is just as important as the gift of Christ. The gift of the Spirit is just as important as the gift of Christ. As we come up to Christmas, yes, we will remember the gift of Christ. That is good. But never never forget the gift of the Spirit. Never forget the gift of the Spirit. What did God say? What, what, what did Christ say to ask our Heavenly Father for? Good gifts, yes. But we see in that, in that scripture it says that he will give more of his Spirit. He will give more of his spirit. But what is the result of God pouring out his spirit? We've seen that there's life and there's growth. But as they come to God, let's have a look at verse 5. One will say, I belong to Yahweh. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, Yahweh's, and will take the name Israel. There are many who come to salvation, and what do they do? They realize that they belong to God. And this is our last point, belonging to God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 says, They are not their own. They were bought with a price. You're not your own. You're not your own. We, we already saw this with the idea of being a servant. But Israel, they are gods by creation. And they are gods by redemption. They are gods by creation because he created them. And, they, and he is worthy of, him, of, of them to worship him and to serve him but they are his as well by redemption in isaiah 14 verse 1 we read this similar picture it says for yahweh will have compassion on jacob and will again choose israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of jacob you see here again this choosing of jacob and and foreigners will also join themselves to the people of israel that's us But the summary of verse 5 is this. Those who previously were not named as one of the people of Israel will call themselves by that name, i.e., they will be proud to confess that they're not their own, but that they are God's people. And they will declare that they belong to Yahweh. Israel will be proud to declare it at the time of the return to exile. And the Gentiles later on in the new covenant will, will take that name on and, and be proud to declare it. That's us. That's us. Now the name, the, the, the name there, uh, translated Lord in all capitals, is, is God's personal name. It's his covenant name. It's his name Yahweh, or, other, or also translated Jehovah. And it's a term of intimacy and love that is for God's people to use and to recognize that they are in a covenant relationship with him. And there's a reason, and and you don't have to do this, but there's a reason why I read out that word Yahweh and not Lord. It's because every time you hear it, I don't want you to think sovereign God, though he is. I want you to recognize what God is saying to his people here is that he is the covenant God and he is faithful to them. He is faithful to them. God is saying, I am your God. Yahweh. Given back in, in, in Exodus 3 with Moses and the burning bush. That's his name that he declares to his people. That's how he was to be identified. And, he's, and, and that's who God says he is. That's who God says he is. He is he says, I am your personal, faithful, covenant-keeping God. Now, every time you read it, you don't read it out loud, you don't have to say Yahweh, but, but every time you read it, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about it. Let me ask you a question. Do you confess God as your God? Do you acknowledge him before others? Or are you ashamed of him? When when others see you, do they see the things of the world as the things that define you? Or do they see that God in Christ defines you? And that's something for you to think about. Is all that that they see on your social media pages and stories about things in the world? Or do they see that you belong to Christ? Do they see that you belong to God and that you are His? When they hear you speak, do they hear in your words, and it doesn't have to be all the time, but do they know that you belong to God, that you are a Christian, that you are the Lord's, that you are Yahweh's? That you are bound in a covenant relationship to Him. As believers in the New Testament, we are part of a covenant with God in Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of this new covenant, this new covenant that is mediated by Him, which is purchased by Him, and is centered around Him. As a believer, you are in that covenant. You are in that covenant. You were chosen to serve God. And because he has made you, he will help you. And you do not need to be afraid. He has poured out his spirit upon you so that you can be one of his people. And all these blessings flow from God's choice of you. All of these blessings, all of them come from the fountainhead of God's, God's, God's selection of you by his grace and his love. Don't these truths excite you? Don't these truths amaze you? What's so amazing about God's grace? We see it here in this text. We see it here in these texts. We are not those who proclaim, Yeah, God chose me. <laughs> and that's that. He chose you. And all these blessings flow out from that like a mighty river. Like a mighty river. Psalm 33, which was read out for us before. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. The people that he has chosen for his inheritance. Remember this blessing. Remember this blessing of being chosen by God and being one of his people. That you belong to God and you are his servants. For those of you here without God, I cannot say the same for you. You have no hope in this world. You have no hope in this world. You serve not God but yourself. God is your enemy and you have every cause to fear. As just as much as God says to Israel, do not fear. He says to you this morning, you must fear. You must fear. God will not help you if you live in your sins. And yet the mercy of God is offered to you. The help of God in Christ is offered to you. This free offer of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, who came not to be served but to serve, as I said before. Christ offers you this morning for you to be one of his people. And if you are not saved this morning, you are missing out. You are missing out. You're missing out. You are like dry and barren ground, which needs the water of the Spirit of God. And yet if you thirst to know God, if you realize that you are not saved, but yet you thirst to know him, to be one of his people, to have God and to have the blessing of the Spirit of God and Christ as your Saviour. I call you this morning to turn, to turn away from your sin. The Bible describes our sin as broken cisterns that we, that we make out for ourselves, broken cisterns which can hold no water, no water. And it says that you have forsaken the fountain of living water, I call you this morning to turn away from your broken cisterns, that whole putrid, foul water, and turn to to Christ, who offers the living water of his spirit. Turn to him, turn to him, and he will pour out his spirit in abundance on you. And the Bible says that you will with joy draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Let's come before God in prayer. Almighty God, if you do not have mercy, we would be forever lost in exile in our sin. We would forever be under your judgment and curse and punishment forever. we thank you out of love, out of your great love. You have chosen us in the Lord Jesus Christ to be sons and daughters of the living God, to be servants of the Most High God. You've chosen us, O oh God, and you, and you will help us. Oh God, please help us to know the blessing of this more and more. Help us to think upon these truths today. Help us to think of these truths all our lives of the blessing of being one of your people. The blessing of being part of your people. The blessing of of you saying to us, I am your God and you are my people. Oh, precious God, for those who are not saved here this morning, oh God, show them, show them the misery and ruin of their sin. Show them how much they're missing out of the inexpressible joy that comes from being one of your people. Oh God, please work on their hearts, transform their hearts, pour out your spirit upon them, let your mighty spirit do his wondrous work of renovation and, 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 and transplantation of a new heart that beats for Christ. We thank you for these wonderful truths. In Jesus' name. Amen.